We're reading God's word from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 to 4 verse 5. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. This is God's Word. Morning, everyone. If we've not met, uh, my name is Matt Fuller. It'd be great to do so. Our great God and Father, we, many of us have been looking at this uh, little letter for a few weeks now uh, with its big idea that you are a saviour and you want everyone to know what you're like and to enjoy the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, knowing that, will we be changed by that truth? And would we live appropriately, we pray, as you tell us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a little, little Bible study on this uh, passage a week or so ago, and um, I asked the question, you know, okay, before, well, before we get going, how important is Christ Church Mayfair? How important is it? And uh, someone immediately said, well, it's both very important and not very important, isn't it? Um, and that's really annoying when you think you've got a good question and someone just gives you the answer straight away. You're thinking, oh, they'll bounce this around and they'll wrestle with it. And yes, it was you. Yes, you know, don't you? Uh, and um, uh, it's all right. It's all right. But what is this entirely? How important is this church? Well, it's both really very important and not that important at all. Because uh, our passage today will say that every church is, verse 15, a pillar, not the, that's a poor translation actually, a pillar of the truth and a guardian or protection of the truth. And so that's our job uh, in many ways, to, to hold up the truth about God as a savior to the world around us. That's our job and it's really important we do our job. And yet, of course, well, like thousands of churches, thousands of pillars holding up this truth. It's not like this building, uh, you knock out that pillar, I reckon we'll be in trouble within a little while. Um, the architects can explain it all to me. After. Yes, you look very dubious. Um, uh, that pillar, we'll be in trouble. But God's truth is upheld by thousands and thousands of pillars, churches across the world. But each and every one has that job of holding up the truth. And that really is the metaphor that dominates our little passage today. The, the, the task of the church is to present the truth to uh, the watching world. And we can't do that if, well, we fail in one or two ways. One, we give up on the truth. Well, then you can't pass on the truth. If you teach the wrong things, you're in trouble. But secondly, and he's going to say here, 
um, conduct matters. You can't hold out the truth if you lack godliness, your conduct is poor, or if you give up on the truth, you stop teaching the gospel. And so in this letter, which is dominated by the idea that God is a savior who wants the whole world to know his salvation, you've got to have those two things. You've got to hold on to the truth and you've got to have appropriate conduct. It's actually, uh, particularly um, the end of chapter three, it's a, it's a central little section in the letter explaining what is going on here. So uh, let me read verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you with these instructions so that... Why am I writing this letter? So that if I'm delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, at first blush, that sounds a little prosaic, doesn't it? I'm writing so you know how to conduct yourself. It's sort of grandmotherly advice. Make sure you conduct yourself at school appropriately. Uh, we go, what are you doing this evening? I'm going to James's house. Make sure you conduct yourself appropriately in front of James's parents. Um, uh, but it's a bit more than that. Really, just godliness. That's what he means. We've had it throughout the letter. Christians, I've written, scribbled down the references at the bottom of your sheet, are to live godly lives, to, to have godly deeds. Godliness is what's required and useful. And in chapter 6, which is really in relating to the world, godliness is essential. So he's writing to the church in Ephesus and saying, look, unless you sort out your conduct, how you're living no one's going to take you seriously. No one's going to take the message of God being a savior seriously. You've got to sort out how you're living. Your conduct really matters. You know, sometimes, uh, every so often, the government wants to give you some money and um, uh, advertises such a fact. You know, so winter fuel payments, don't miss out on it. I mean, not all of us are entitled to such things, of course. But uh, don't, miss out, don't miss out on your winter fuel payments. And they'll advertise, look, we've got money that you're meant to have. Or uh, there's a, a help with cost of living. They're advertising at the moment. If you need some help with the cost of living crisis, you know, they're, they're, there are places you can go and apply online. Now, that's the government saying, we want to be generous to you. Now, how tragic if some people say, yeah, the government's a joke. Government's a joke. I mean, you might feel that way. But the government's a joke, and I, I, I'm not taking seriously anything that they... They said, we want to be generous. Well, I can't take you seriously. Well, that was the situation of this church in Ephesus, where Timothy is and Paul is writing to. Their message is, God is a generous saviour. He wants the whole world to know about the forgiveness that's on offer in Jesus Christ. But the watching world are going, well, we can't take you seriously. Look at your church. It's a joke a joke. You've got to sort out your conduct, he says. So we'll run through it uh, like this. God's house must be godly. By contrast, we've been warned of the negative of ungodly teachings. And actually, the mystery of godliness is quite simple. It's Jesus. Okay, we'll work through it like that. God's house must be godly. We've been warned of ungodly teachings. And third, the mystery of godliness is Jesus. First, just those first couple of verses, verse 14, 15. God's house must be godly. I'm writing these things, so if I'm delayed, you'll, God's people will know how to conduct themselves in God's household. 
Now, really, um, chapter one, Paul was, was dominated by Paul talking about the content of the Christian message. But really, since chapter two and verse one, he's been talking about behavior. God's house has got to hold out this message, and it can't do that if the conduct is poor. And so this is the idea, the dominant idea, God's household. It's, it's literally house, but the New Testament, you've got to take that in one or two ways. I entered my house and celebrated with my house. Um, you get that once in uh, the book of Acts. It's just the same word, but you know, they said, I entered my house through the door, it's a building, and celebrated with my household, the staff and the, my wife and children, both. And verse 15, it seems to start off with the people and turn into the building. That's the, the idea, I think, that, that he is talking about here. But let, let me highlight a couple of things. This household of God then, first, it upholds the truth. We're told the church of the living God is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, forgive me, let me quibble at a couple of points. I think better would be a, a pillar and buttress. That's what all the other, tra most translations go for, a pillar and buttress. I think the translators here thought, well, in the 21st century, who knows what a buttress is, um, unless you're an architect. Well, we sort of do, don't we? Like Notre Dame, famous for its flying buttresses. Well, Notre Dame, there we go, the little, the, the, you know, the, the walls that support the wall, the arches. What do we call them? Arches. We call them a buttress, says the architect in front row. The buttress that holds up the wall. We call it a buttress, okay? That, that's what it is. It, it holds up the wall. Foundation, I think they've just gone for that because no one really understands what a buttress is like me. Um, but, uh, but foundation's not a great job because it's normally the foundations of what something is built upon. And that's probably an unhelpful idea here because it's not that the truth about Jesus Christ is built upon the church. The New Testament wouldn't say that. You know, the church is built upon the truth. So I think buttress is a better word uh, to use here. Give them. Do you want some modern ones? I started Googling buttresses. There you go. Uh, those are buttresses, apparently. Who knew? The Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. Uh, and it's built, and it stands up, which is good. Uh, it stands up because of buttresses. All the little towers are actually buttresses supporting the big tower. I'm getting nods from the front row, which is reassuring from the architect. Um, buttresses, they support, they hold up the truth so that everyone can see it. So it doesn't just fall apart. That's the job of a buttress. And we're told here that a church is, the church of the living God is, I don't know why it is, it's actually a singular, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's our job. Christ Church, Mayfair, that's our job. To hold up the truth. The tr truth of the gospel is held up and protected by churches. And if we don't do that job, why would God hold on to us? He is the living God, and actually all up and down the land, individual churches which fail to hold up the truth are just dying, collapsing. Read the other day, the Church of Scotland, which just gave up on the gospel truth a few years ago, its numbers have halved since 2001, and at current rates of losing, it'll just, they'll shut their doors by 2034. There'd just be zero people going. Because he is the living God. And if you give up on holding out the truth, which is what you're meant to do as a church, why would he keep you going? Why would he do that? 
So that's the job of the church, to hold up or hold out the truth. Now, of course, the truth makes people a bit nervous sometimes. Who's got the truth? Here, it's just a person. We'll get to it in a while. But you get to verse 16. 16, what is the truth that he's speaking about? It's a person. It's Jesus. The truth we care about is Jesus. And that's the dominant note, of course, again, throughout the letter. This chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners. And, and this truth, he's saying here, if you're in his household, this truth will change you. And there'll be a conduct consistent with him if you're a member of God's household. And the world will, not, excuse me, will spot that, notice that. So uh, it's Father's Day, apparently, and um, uh, the, uh, no, sorry, that's a cheap thing, you know, my son's still in bed, um, uh, gets up for the evening, he'll be here tonight, but the um, uh, Father's Day, so indulge, uh, you become a bit like your dad, if you're a boy and you become a bit like your mum if you're a woman, I know, but you, you just do, you, you live in their household, you do, in good ways, Maybe occasionally not so good ways, and then some sort of completely neutral ways. One or two would have, I had a trouble. My father, well, we were, he, he's passed away now, but when growing up in perhaps early teen years, uh, we'd be watching a film together. I mean, you know, going back a few years ago, 30, 40 years, nothing was that bad on telly in those days, but there'd be a, a sex scene of some kind. You know, it was all sort of very gentle in those days. But uh, my father did this standard thing. Whenever anything, you know, so heavy petting turns into, you know, you know, the music's, you know, it's take my breath, you know, or it goes, and um, you know that sort of thing. And uh, my dad would always go, ooh, <laughs> and, and raise his leg uh, from his chair, ooh. He'd just always do that in a way that was just, you know, oh come on, dad. Um, just, you know, I think it was sort of mild embarrassment of watching it with his kids, a little bit of distraction, you know. Whenever anything, you know, show me heaven, and whatever comes on, you know. I know what dad's going to do. Oh, and yeah, guaranteed. Of course, roll on a few years, and in our own family, we're watching telly, and a film will come on, and there'll be a, that sort of scene. And what? Oh, <laughs> and I'll go, I'll go to leg because, and you think, yeah, it is sort of, why are you doing that? Because my dad did. It's not, it's not a terrible thing. It's just, you know. Now, of course, you roll on a couple more years. And a 17, 18-year-old, something like that comes on. And before I even do it, he'll go, ooh. <laughs> but rather with a smile on his face, with utter condescension. <laughs> That's what you're about to do, isn't it? Stupid old man. And, um, but you do. And then, you know, give it 20, 30 years, he'll be doing it for his own kids, and then I'll be laughing. Um, but you do. You become like your household. You become like the dominant figures in your household you should, says Paul here, be transformed by living in God's household, belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be a conduct, a basic godliness which is consistent. And if that isn't there, how are you going to hold out the truth? It won't make sense to people. The church of the living God, it becomes like him. Conduct goes hand in hand with the truth, or it should do, here. 
That's why he cares so very much. And, and um, we'll get to it in, in chapters um, uh, five and six, but I've started to scribble down one or two of them there. The concern there with behavior, practical behavior there, is that God's name must not be slandered, chapter 5, 8, 14, 6, 1. And the church is doing that in certain ways. God's house must be godly. It's got to become like their father. But by contrast, he warns here, and this is the, the issue that was taking place in, uh, in the church in Ephesus, uh, we've been warned of ungodly teachings. So here's the contrast. Chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Golly. The Spirit clearly says, where does he do that? <laughs> well, plenty of places, I think you'd say, in, in the New Testament. Um, perhaps an obvious one, given we're in Ephesus, Acts. We've got it, um, Ali, Acts chapter 20, when Paul says goodbye to the, the, uh, the Ephesian elders, he warns them, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Well, that's precisely what's happened. And there, Acts chapter 20, the Spirit says through the Scriptures, or maybe the words of Jesus, Mark 13, false messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Well, here, those sort of references, the Spirit clearly says that this will happen. Now, what has happened? Some have abandoned the faith. It's a deliberate choice. Why? Well, they've been taught demonic, we'll come back to that, things through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. It's a vivid picture of that. You, you see what's happened throughout the letter. He's emphasized the importance of the conscience all the way through from chapter 1, verse 5. Don't ignore your conscience because it sets you off on a dangerous path. And, and here... I think eventually you keep ignoring your conscience and it becomes seared as with a hot iron. Now, having distressed the architects, now I upset the medics. Um, so presumably the, the metaphor is you know, of, of a wound which is bleeding and it's staunched by a hot iron melting and so the, the nerve endings are now numb and can feel nothing. The first time you do something wrong, you think, oh, it's terrible, I shouldn't do that. The next time, I probably shouldn't do it. You do it repeatedly, bah, what does it matter? You slander someone behind their back, oh, I feel awful about that. But then you do it again, I really shouldn't do that. Eventually, bah, you just do it. You get habituated to it. Could be true of any pattern of behavior. Be careful, says Paul. Eventually, you just won't care. You might close your mind to the truth. That's what a politician was accused of in the government report this week. You just don't even know what is true and what is false at some level. So be careful, he says. Now, what do you make this language? That such teaching is demonic, seems a bit exceptional, because what actually is the teaching? Verse 3, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods. Well, so the next time someone says to you, oh, you don't have an ice cream, ha-ha, that's demonic. Um, no, not that, not that, of course. That would be overstating the case. There's nothing wrong with, um, of course, being single or abstaining from, such, from certain foods. Feel free, do whatever you want. But as soon as you demand that of others, you must abstain from that. 
or you're not part of God's household. Oh, at that point, you're in trouble, of course. Still, demonic? I wonder it's because of the division it can cause. So Paul will say, look, all these things get forbidden, but God created them to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. It's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. You should be able to give thanks for such things. And if you insist, demand that you, you must remain single and you must not eat these foods if you're going to be mature, if you're going to be part of God's household, what does that do? Well, I imagine it causes all sorts of division, perhaps between uh, the individual Christian and God. Because, oh, to be a keen Christian, I've got to go without all these things that I'd like. God's a killjoy. No, receive good things with thanksgiving, it says here. It, it must cause separation between within a church. Uh, we're the elite, and we go without certain foods. And you plebs, with your ice creams or whatever it may be, um, you're just second class. It's causing all sorts of division. And presumably it causes division between the church and the world at an unnecessary point. Because people look on and say, well, they're weird. Or they're sort of ascetic denial of, well, who wants to be part of that? I guess that's the sort of thing that's taking place here. What might be the appeal of this? Paul doesn't say. I mean, I just experientially, let me give a brief comment. Zeal is appealing. No doubt these hypocritical lies were zealous. And people quite like zeal and confidence. Zeal and confidence, people will follow that. Maybe it, it, it's that. Or maybe it's ritual is easier than godliness. Here are certain things. You just, if you go without whatever it is, apples or whatever it is, whatever, who knows what they're telling them to abstain from, you go without, then God will think highly of you. Well, I can go without apples. I can probably go without meat. Godliness was a bit harder. <laughs> Actually, you have to battle for godliness. So maybe it's just ease as well is part of the appeal. But that's the negative. Look, God's house must be godly. Paul, the Spirit has warned us of ungodly teachings. So how do we push on in godliness? Well, he says, the mystery of godliness is Jesus. It's quite straightforward, actually. The mystery of godliness is Jesus. Verse 16, beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. What is the mystery of godliness? It's a person. It's Jesus. Okay. How do I grow in godliness? Well, once again, it's the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Yeah, but what does that mean? Well, I think verse 16 makes most sense uh, that it's, uh, most commentators would take it this way, it's some sort of early hymn or creed that Paul is quoting. I think it makes both, most sense as sort of having two stanzas, two verses. So uh, the, the, the first three lines are his life. He appeared in the flesh. There was the incarnation of Jesus. He came to earth. He was vindicated by the Spirit when he rose again. He was seen by angels when he ascended to heaven, I think. And then his subsequent rule now, he is preached about by the church amongst the nations. People believe in the resurrection. He's taken up in glory. That is, he receives glory as a church gathers in his name. I think 
is what is being said. So how does the household grow like the leader? Well, you dwell upon his life, his resurrection, his ascension, just the basic truths of the faith, I think. And also, you get on with the task of preaching amongst the nations, believing on the world. It seems what Paul is saying here is that that activity helps you grow in godliness. The, the activity of speaking about Jesus so that others come to faith, that helps you grow. I'm a bit similar to what we thought of last time, chapter 3, verse 13. Those who serve in, in, in church leadership in some sense, they, they gain great assurance in their faith. There's this sort of virtuous spiral. I think it's the same concept here. It's not good enough just to cognitively know stuff. It's the activity of pushing on in godliness. And here in particular, in 1 Timothy, with his emphasis upon God being a savior, to share the faith. It makes all the difference in the world. You could say, oh, I've been reading loads about exercise classes recently. I'm very excited. Uh, all these new things, just 10. Oh, reformer pilates. It's, oh, I'm, actually, I'm... Uh, I'm going for it. F4S, that looks pretty uh, hard labor, but I'm going to go for it and um, lose. I'm very excited. Well, yeah, that's all good. Doing the stuff would make more of a difference, right? I mean, reading about them is nice, but you don't get the gains unless you engage in the activity. And I think growing in godliness seems to be, he's saying here, that that's affected by the activity. So look, God's household, it must be godly. It has to be. If, if we're going to do our task of holding out the fact that God is a savior to the world, that truth needs to be held tightly and a conduct, a godliness commensurate with it needs to be demonstrated. You've got to have both. And so in the end, we need to return to who Jesus is, by knowing, we grow in godliness by knowing that in Jesus we have demonstrated God's commitment to see people saved. You just think where we've come from in this letter, if you've been here over the last few weeks. Almost at the heart of every chapter is that, is some reference to that activity. Chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners that's our God. Chapter 2, verse 5. There's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. That's our God. Here in chapter 3, he appeared in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels. That's our God. Chapter 4, verse 10. Next time. We have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people. That's our God. And if you know him, you want to become like him. You'll be formed like him. And this God who wants all to be saved says to you and to me, hold that message out to the world and live in such a way which shows that you've been changed by me. Okay, look, I... I Indulge me because it's Father's Day. Some would know. Uh, I became a Christian in my 20s uh, and my father was very hostile. 
he was 40 years older than me, um, but he was always deeply hostile. I think he took it as a slur upon him. I'd say this was the most important thing in the world. And he would say, great, so you're telling me as a dad, I didn't tell you about the most important thing in the world. Uh, and he never wanted to speak about it at all. Uh, and often at a dinner table, the conversation would come up and he'd say, if you keep going, I'm just walking away. I do that, and we keep going. And he would, he'd just take his plate and go and sit in the kitchen and eat. Um, deeply hostile. Until age 80, when um, he got cancer, my mum cared for him. My mum had become a Christian in her 70s. And eventually, a year into his cancer treatment, he said, all right, your mother has changed enormously in the last few years. I don't think she could have coped with this the way it's been. But I think maybe it's true then, because she's been so changed in her conduct, her pattern of life. Go on then, tell me about your Jesus. And I think he became a Christian before he died, because there was conduct consistent with the fact that God is a savior there was conduct transformed by living rightly in God's household. And that is what the Lord says. That's entirely normal. And it's what the world needs to see. And it can absolutely transform the lives of others too. Let's pray together. Father, we continue to give you thanks, this little letter of 1 Timothy, that you are a saviour and that you long all people to be saved from their sins, from being shut out uh, of heaven forever. Father, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, paying in his death a ransom for all they've done wrong so that they could share eternity with him. You're a good God. You're a generous God. You want your church to advertise your goodness, kindness, generosity. Father, therefore, will we be a church which conducts ourselves rightly so that we do that for the sake of a lost world and the honor of your name? Amen.